epilogue of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Epilogue It happened that one bright summer's morning, exactly thirty years after the launching of the first German air fleet, an old man took a small boy to look for a missing hen through the ruins of Bun Hill and out towards the splintered pinnacles of the Crystal Palace. He was not a very old man. He was, as a matter of fact, still within a few weeks of sixty-three, but constant stooping over spades and forks and the carrying of roots and manure and exposures to the damps of life in the open air without a change of clothing had bent him into the form of a sickle. Moreover, he had lost most of his teeth, and that had affected his digestion, and through that his skin and temper. In face and expression he was curiously like that old Thomas Smallways, who had once been coachman to Sir Peter Bone. And this was just as it should be, for he was Tom Smallways, the son, who formerly kept the little greengrocer's shop under the straddle of the monorail viaduct in the high street of Bunhill. But now there were no greengrocer's shops, and Tom was living in one of the derelict villas hard by that unoccupied building site that had been, and was still, the scene of his daily horticulture. He and his wife lived upstairs, and in the drawing and dining rooms, which had each French windows opening onto the lawn, and all about the ground floor generally, Jessica, who was now a lean and lined and baldish but still very efficient and energetic old woman, kept her three cows and a multitude of gawky hens. These two were part of a little community of stragglers and returned fugitives, perhaps a hundred and fifty souls of them altogether, that had settled down to the new conditions of things after the panic and famine and pestilence that followed in the wake of the war. They had come back from strange refuges and hiding places, and had squatted down amongst the familiar houses and begun that hard struggle against nature for food, which was now the chief interest of their lives. They were by sheer preoccupation with that a peaceful people, more particularly after Wilkes, the house agent, driven by some obsolete dream of acquisition, had been drowned in the pool by the ruined gasworks for making inquiries into title and displaying a litigious turn of mind. He had not been murdered, you understand, but the people had carried an exemplary ducking ten minutes or so beyond its healthy limits. This little community had returned from its original habits of suburban parasitism to what no doubt had been the normal life of humanity for nearly immemorial years, a life of homely economics in the most intimate contact with cows and hens and patches of ground a life that breathes and exhales the scent of cows and finds the need for stimulants satisfied by the activity of the bacteria and vermin it engenders. Such had been the life of the European peasant from the dawn of history to the beginning of the scientific era. So it was the large majority of the people of Asia and Africa had always been wont to live. For a time it had seen that, by virtue of machines and scientific civilization, Europe was to be lifted out of this perpetual round of animal drudgery, and that America was to evade it very largely from the outset. 
and with the smash of the high and dangerous and splendid edifice of mechanical civilization that had arisen so marvelously, back to the land came the common man, back to the manure. The little communities, still haunted by ten thousand memories of a greater state, gathered and developed almost tacitly a customary law, and fell under the guidance of a medicine man or a priest. The world rediscovered religion and the need of something to hold its communities together. At Bun Hill this function was entrusted to an old Baptist minister. He taught a simple but adequate faith. In his teaching a good principle called the Word fought perpetually against a diabolical female influence called the Scarlet Woman and an evil being called Alcohol. This alcohol had long since become a purely spiritualized conception, deprived of any element of material application. It had no relation to the occasional fines of whiskey and wine in Londoners' cellars that gave Bun Hill its only holidays. He taught this doctrine on Sundays, and on weekdays he was an amiable and kindly old man, distinguished by his quaint disposition to wash his hands, and if possible his face, daily and with a wonderful genius for cutting up pigs. He held his Sunday services in the old church in the Beckenham Road, and then the countryside came out in a curious reminiscence of the urban dress of Edwardian times. All the men without exception wore frock coats, top hats, and white shirts, though many had no boots. Tom was particularly distinguished on these occasions because he wore a top hat with gold lace about it, and a green coat and trousers that he had found upon a skeleton in the basement of the urban and district bank. The women, even Jessica, came in jackets and immense hats extravagantly trimmed with artificial flowers and exotic bird's feathers, of which there were abundant supplies in the shops of the north, and the children, there were not many children because a large proportion of the babies born in Bun Hill died in a few days' time of inexplicable maladies, had similar clothes cut down to accommodate them. Even Stringer's little grandson of four wore a large top hat. That was a Sunday costume of the Bun Hill district, a curious and interesting survival of the genteel traditions of the scientific age. On a weekday the folk were dingily and curiously hung about with dirty rags of housecloth and scarlet flannel, sacking, curtain surge and patches of old carpet, and went either barefoot or on rude wooden sandals. These people, the reader must understand, were an urban population, sunken back to the state of a barbaric peasantry, and so without any of the simple arts a barbaric peasantry would possess. In many ways they were curiously degenerate and incompetent. They had lost any idea of making textiles. They could hardly make up clothes when they had material and they were forced to plunder the continually dwindling supplies of the ruins about them for cover. All the simple arts they had ever known they had lost, and with the breakdown of modern drainage, modern water supply, shopping and the like, their civilized methods were useless. Their cooking was worse than primitive. It was a feeble muddling with food over wood fires and rusty drawing-room fireplaces, for the kitcheners burnt too much. Among them all, no sense of baking or brewing or metalworking was to be found. Their employment of sacking and such like coarse material for workaday clothing, 
and their habit of tying it on with string and of thrusting wadding and straw inside of it for warmth gave these people an odd, packed appearance. And as it was a weekday when Tom took his little nephew for the hen-seeking excursion, so it was they were attired. "'So you finally got to Bun Hill at last, Teddy,' said old Tom, beginning to talk and slackening his pace so soon as they were out of range of old Jessica. "'You're the last of Bert's boys for me to see. "'What I've seen, young Bert I've seen, Sissy and Matt. "'Tom was called after me, and Peter. "'A travelling people brought you along all right, eh?' "'I managed,' said Teddy, who was a dry little boy. "'Didn't want to eat you on the way?' "'They was all right,' said Teddy. "'And on the way, near Letterhead, we saw a man riding on a bicycle.' "'My word,' said Tom. "'There ain't many of those about nowadays. "'Where was he going?' "'Said he was going to Dorking, "'if the high road was good enough, "'but I doubt if he got there. "'All about Burford it was flooded. "'We come over the hill, Uncle, "'what they call a Roman road. "'That's high and safe.' "'I don't know it,' said old Tom. "'But a bicycle. "'You sure it was a bicycle? "'Had two wheels?' "'It was a bicycle, right enough.' Why, I remember a time, Teddy, when there was bicycles no end. When you could stand just here, the road was as smooth as a board then, and see twenty or thirty coming and going at the same time. Bicycles and moti-bicycles, moti-cars, all sorts of whirly things. No, said Teddy. I do. They keep on going by all day, hundreds and hundreds. But where was they all going? asked Teddy. Tearing off to Brighton. you never seen Brighton, I expect. It's down by the sea. Used to be a most amazing place. And coming and going from London. Why? They did. But why? Lord knows why, Teddy. They did. And then you see that great thing there, like a great big rusty nail sticking up higher than all the houses. And that one yonder, and that and how something's fell in between them among the houses. They was parts of the monorail. They went down to Brighton, too, and all day and night there was people going, great cars as big as houses, full of people. The little boy regarded that rusty evidence across the narrow, muddy ditch of cow droppings that had once been a high street. He was clearly disposed to be sceptical, and yet there the ruins were. He grappled with ideas beyond the strength of his imagination. What would they go for? he asked. All of them. They had to. Everything was on the go those days. Everything. Yeah, but where did they come from? All round here, Teddy. There was people living in those houses. And up the road, more houses and more people. You'd hardly believe me, Teddy, but it's Bible truth. You can go on that way forever and ever and keep on coming on houses. More houses and more. There's no end to them. No end. They get bigger and bigger. His voice dropped, as though he named strange names. It's London, he said. And it's all empty now and left alone. All day it's left alone. You don't find hardly a man. You won't find nothing but dogs and cats after the rats until you get round by Bromley and Beckenham. And then there you find a Kentish man herding swine. Nice rough lot they are, too. 
I'll tell you that so long as the sun is up, it's as still as a grave. I've been about by day, orphan and orphan. He paused. And all those houses and streets and ways used to be full of people before the war in the air, and the famine, and the purple death. They used to be full of people, Teddy. And then came a time when they was full of corpses, when you couldn't go a mile that way before the stink of them drove you back. It was a purple death that killed them every one. The cats and the dogs and ends and vermin caught it. Everything and every one had it. Just a few of us happened to live. I pulled through, and your aunt, though it made her lose her hair. Oh, you find a skeleton in the houses now. This way, we've been into all the houses and took what we wanted and buried most of the people. But up that way, Norwood way, there's houses with the glass in the window still, and the furniture not touched, all dusty and fallen to pieces, and the bones of the people lying, some in bed, some about the house, just as the purple death left them five and twenty years ago. I went into one, me and old Higgins last year, and there was a room with books, Teddy. You know what I mean by books, Teddy? I see him. I seen him with pictures. Well, books all around, Teddy. Hundreds of books. Beyond rhyme or reason, as the saying goes. Green, mouldy, and dry. I was for leaving him alone. I was never much for reading. But old Higgins, he must touch him. I believe I could read one of them now, he says. Not it, I says. I could, he says, laughing and takes one out and opens it. I looked, and there, Teddy, was a coloured picture. Oh, so lovely. It was a picture of women and serpents in a garden. I never see anything like it. It suits me, said old Higgins, to rights. And then, kind of friendly, he gave the book a pat. Old Tom Smallways paused impressively. And then, said Teddy, it all fell to dust. White dust. He became still more impressive. We didn't touch no more of them books that day. Not after that. For a long time, both were silent. Then Tom, playing with a subject that attracted him with a fatal fascination, repeated, All day long, they lie still as the grave. Teddy took the point at last. Don't they lie a-nights? he asked. Old Tom shook his head. Nobody knows, boy. Nobody knows. But what could they do? Nobody knows. Nobody ain't seen to tell not nobody. Nobody? Well, they tell tales, says old Tom. They tell tales. But there ain't no believing them. I gets home about sundown and keeps indoors, so I can't say nothing, can I? But there's them that thinks some things, and them that thinks others. I've heard it's unlucky to take clothes off them unless they got white bones. There's stories. The boy watched his uncle sharply. What stories, he asked. Stories of moonlight nights and things walking about. But I take no stock in them. I'll keep them in bed. If you listen to stories, Lord, you'll get afraid of yourself. 
in a field at midday. The little boy looked around and ceased his questions for a space. They say there's an og man in Beckenham that was lost in London three days and three nights. He went up after whiskey to Cheapside and lost his way among the ruins and wandered. Three days and three nights he wandered about in the streets, kept changing so he couldn't get on. If he hadn't remembered some words out of his Bible, he might have been there now. All day he went, and all night and all day long it was still. It was as still as death all day long until the sunset come, and the twilight thickened, and then it began to rustle and whisper and go pit-a-pat with a sound like hurrying feet. He paused. Yes, said the little boy breathlessly. Go on. What then? A sound of carts and horses there was, and a sound of cabs and omnibuses, and then a lot of whistling, shrill whistles, whistles that froze his marrow. And directly the whistles began, things began to show. People in the streets hurrying, people in the houses and shops busying themselves. Moti cars in the streets, a sort of moonlight in all the lamps and windows. People, I say, Teddy, but they wasn't people. They was the ghosts of them that was overtook, the ghosts of them that used to crowd those streets. And they went past him and through him and never heeded him, went by like fogs and vapours, Teddy. And sometimes they was cheerful and sometimes they was horrible. Horrible beyond words. And once he came to a place called Piccadilly, Teddy, and there was lights blazing like daylight, and ladies and gentlemen in splendid clothes crowding the pavement, and taxicabs following along the road. And as he looked, they all went evil, evil in the face, Teddy. And it seemed to him suddenly they saw him. And the women began to look at him and say things to him, horrible, wicked things. One come very near him, Teddy, right up to him, and looked into his face, close, and she hadn't got a face to look with, only a painted skull. And then he see, they was all painted skulls, and one after another they crowded on him, saying horrible things, and catching at him, and threatening, and coaxing him, so that his heart near left his body for fear. Yes, gasped Teddy in an unendurable pause. Then it was, he remembered the words of scripture, and saved himself alive. The Lord is my helper, he says, therefore I will fear nothing. And straight away there came a cock crowing, and the street was empty from end to end. And after that the Lord was good to him, and guided him home. Teddy stared, and caught at another question. But who was the people, he asked. Who lived in all these houses? What was they? Gentlemen in business. People with money, least of ways we thought it was money, till everything smashed up. And then seemingly it was just paper, all sorts. Why, there was hundreds of thousands of them. There was millions. I've seen that. The street, irregular so you couldn't walk among the pavements. Shopping time with women and people shopping. But where'd they get their food and things? Boredom and shops, like I used to have. I'll show you the place, Teddy, if we go back. 
people nowadays haven't no idea of a shop, no idea. Plate, glass, windows, it's all Greek to them. I've had as much as a ton and a half of potatoes to handle all at the same time. You'd open your eyes till they dropped out to see just what I used to have in my shop. Baskets of pears, heaped up, marrows, apples and pears, delicious, great nuts. His voice became luscious. Bananas, oranges. What's bananas? asked the boy. And oranges. Fruits they was. Sweet, juicy, delicious fruits. Foreign fruits. They bought them from Spain and New York and places and ships and things. They bought them to me from all over the world and I sold them in my shop. I sold them, Teddy. Me what goes about now with you, dressed up in old sacks and looking for lost ends? People used to come into my shop, great, beautiful ladies like you'd already dream of now, dressed up to the nines and say, Well, Mr. Smallways, what you got this morning? And I'd say, Well, I got some very nice Canadian apples, or perhaps I got custard maras. See, and they'd buy them. Right off, they'd say, Send me some up. Lord, what a life that was, the business of it, the bustle. The smart things you saw, multi cars going by, carriages, people, organ grinders, German bands, or is something going past, or is, if it wasn't for those empty houses, I'd think it was all a dream. But what killed all the people, Uncle? asked Teddy. It was a mash-up, said old Tom. Everything was going right till they started that war. Everything was going like clockwork. Everybody was busy, and everybody was happy, and everybody got a good square meal every day. He met incredulous eyes. Everybody, he said firmly, if you couldn't get it anywhere else, you could get it in the workhouse. A nice hot bowl of soup called skilly, and bread better than anyone knows how to make now. Regular white bread, government bread. Teddy marveled, but said nothing. It made him feel deep longings that he found it wisest to fight down. For a time the old man resigned himself to the pleasures of gustatory reminiscence. His lips moved. Pickled salmon, he whispered, and vinegar, Dutch cheese, beer, a pipe of tobacco. But how did those people get killed? asked Teddy presently. There was the war. The war was the beginning of it. The war banged and flummoxed about, but it didn't really kill many people. But it upset things. They came and set fire to London and burnt and sank all the ships there used to be in the Thames. We could see the smoke and steam for weeks. And they threw a bomb into the Crystal Palace and made a bust up and broke down the rail lines and things like that. But as for killing people, it was just accidental if they did. They killed each other more. There was a great fight all here about one day, up in the air. Great things bigger than fifty houses, bigger than the Crystal Palace, bigger, bigger than anything, flying about up in the air and whacking at each other, and dead men falling off it. Terrific. But it wasn't so much the people they killed as the businesses they stopped. There wasn't any business doing, Teddy. There wasn't any money about and nothing to buy if you had it. 
But how did the people get killed? said the little boy in a pause. I'm telling you, Teddy, said the old man. It was the stopping of business that come next. Suddenly there didn't seem to be any money. There was checks. There was a bit of paper written on. And they was just as good as money, just as good if they come from customers you knew. Then all of a sudden they wasn't. I was left with three of them, and two I'd given change. Then it got about that five-pound notes were no good. And then the silver sort of went off. Gold you couldn't get for love or anything. The banks in London had got it, and the banks was all mashed up. Everybody went bankrupt. Everybody was thrown out of work. Everybody. He paused and scrutinized his hearer. The small boy's intelligent face expressed hopeless perplexity. That's how it happened, said old Tom. He sought for some means of expression. It was like stopping a clock, he said. Things were quiet for a bit, deadly quiet, except for the airships fighting about in the sky. And then people began to get excited. I remember my last customer, the very last customer ever I had. He was a Mr. Moses Gluckstein, a city gent, and very pleasant, and fond of sparrowgrass and chokes. And he cut in... There hadn't been no customers for days, and began to talk pretty fast, offering me for everything I had, anything, potatoes or anything, its weight in gold. He said it was a little speculation he wanted to try. He said it was a sort of bet, really, and very likely he'd lose, but never mind that, he wanted to try. He always had been a gambler, he said. He said I only got to weigh it out, and he'd give me a check right away. Well, that led to a bit of an argument, perfect respectful it was, but an argument about whether a check was still good. And while he was explaining, there come by a lot of these here unemployed with a great banner they had for everyone to read. Everyone could read in those days. We want food. Three or four of them suddenly turns and comes into my shop. Got any food, says one. No, I says not to sell. I wish I had, but if I had, I'm afraid I couldn't let you have it. This gent, he's been offering me... Mr. Gluckstein, he tried to stop me, but it was too late. What's he been offering you, says a great big chap with a hatchet. What's he been offering you? I had to tell. Boys, he said, here's another fiend and seer. And they took him out there and then and hung him on a lamppost down the street. He never lifted a finger to resist. After I told on him, he never said a word. Tom meditated for a space. First chap I ever seen hung, he said. How old was you, asked Teddy. About thirty, said old Tom. What? I saw three pig-stealers hung before I was six, said Teddy. Father took me because of my birthday being near. Said I ought to be blooded. Well, you never saw no one killed by a moldy car, anyhow, said the old Tom after a moment of chagrin. And you never saw no dead man carried into a chemist shop. Teddy's momentary triumph faded. No, he said, I haven't. No, I won't. No, I won't. You'll never see the things I've seen, never. Not if you live to be a hundred. But as I was saying, that's how the famine and the rioting began. Then there was strikes and socialism, things I never did hold with. Worse and worse. There was fighting and shooting down and burning and plundering. They broke up the banks up in London and got the gold. But they couldn't make food out of gold. How did we get on? Well, we kept quiet. 
we didn't interfere with no one, and no one didn't interfere with us. We had some old taters about, but mostly we lived on rats. Ours was an old house, full of rats, and the famine never seemed to bother them. Often we'd get a rat, often, but most of the people who lived hereabouts was too tender stomach for rats. Didn't seem to fancy them. They'd been used to all sorts of falals, and they didn't take to honest feeding, nor till it was too late. Died robber. There was a famine began to kill people. Even before the Purple Death come along, they was dying like flies at the end of summer. Oh, I remember it all. I was one of the first to have it. I was out seeing if I mightn't get old of a cat or something, and then I went round to my bit of ground to see whether I couldn't get up some young turnips I'd forgot. And I was took something awful. You know, idea, the pain, Teddy. It doubled me up pretty near. I just lay down by at their corner, and your aunt come along to look for me and drag me home like a sack. I'd never have got better if it hadn't been for your aunt, Tom. She says to me, you got to get well, and I had to. Then she sickened. She's sickened, but there ain't much dying about your aunt. Lord, she says, as if I'd leave you to go muddling along alone. That's what she says. She's got a tongue as your aunt, but it took her ear off. And arst though I might, she's never cared for the wig I got her off the old lady that was in the vicarage garden. Well, this here purple death, it, it just wiped people out, Teddy. You couldn't bury them, and it took the dogs and the cats, too, and the rats and horses. At last, every house and garden was full of dead bodies. London way, you couldn't go for the smell up there. And we had to move out of the high street and into the villa we got. And all the water run short that way. The drains and underground tunnels took it. Lord knows where the purple death come from. Some say one thing and some another. Some said it come from eating rats and some from eating nothing. Some says the Asiatics brought it from some high place, Tibet, I think, where it never did nobody much harm. All I know is it come after the famine, and the famine came after the panic, and the panic came after the war. Teddy thought. What made the Purple Death, he asked. Haven't I told you? But why did they have a panic? They had it. And why did they start the war? Well, they couldn't stop themselves, having them airships made them. And how did the war end? Lord knows if it's ended, boy, said old Tom. Lord knows if it's ended. There's been travelers through here. There was a chap only two summers ago say it's going on still. They say there's bands of people up north who keep on with it, and people in Germany and China and Mexico and places. He said they still got flying machines and gas and things, but we haven't seen nothing in here now for seven years, and nobody hasn't come nigh of us. Last we saw was a crumpled sort of airship going away over there. It was a littlest-sized thing and lopsided as though it had something the matter with it. He pointed and came to a stop at a gap in the fence, the vestiges of the old fence from which, in the company of his neighbor, Mr. Stringer, the milkman, he had once watched the South of England Aero Club's Saturday afternoon ascents. 
dim memories it may be of that particular afternoon returned to him there down there where all that rust looks so red and bright that's the gas works what's gas asked the little boy oh a hairy sort of nothing that you put in balloons to make em go up and then you used to burn it till electricity come the boy tried vainly to imagine gas on the basis of these particulars then his thoughts reverted to a previous topic but why didn't they end the war obstinacy everybody was getting hurt but everybody was hurting and everybody was high-spirited and patriotic and so they smashed up things instead they just went on smashing and afterwards they just got desperate and savage it ought to have ended said the little boy it didn't ought to have begun said old tom the people was proud people was la dee darish and uppish and proud too much meat and drink they had give in not them and after a bit nobody asked them to give in nobody asked them he sucked his old gums thoughtfully and his gaze strayed away across the valley to where the shattered glass of the crystal palace glittered in the sun a dim large sense of waste and irrevocable lost opportunities pervaded his mind he repeated his ultimate judgment upon all these things obstinately slowly and conclusively his final saying upon the matter you can say what you like he said it didn't ought ever to have begun he said it simply somebody somewhere ought to have stopped something but who or how or why were all beyond his ken end of war in the air by h g wells